cornstarch might get the most love in professional kitchens as an anti-chafing powder for busy line cooks sweating in front of hot stoves, but it's a very useful ingredient as well. We're using it today for its abilities as a coating and as a thickener. From KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. As anyone who has ever cracked open a book about low-carb dieting knows, starches and sugars are very close chemical relatives. The most basic form is called a monosaccharide, and the three most common in food are glucose, fructose, and galactose, formed from six atoms of carbon, 12 of hydrogen, and six of oxygen that are arranged in different ways. These are called simple sugars. Two of these linked together to form a larger molecule are called disaccharides, the most famous being sucrose, which is a molecule each of glucose and fructose bonded chemically. Adding one or more monosaccharides to a disaccharide gets us to polysaccharides, or as we know them in the kitchen, starches. Starch is how plants store energy. The glucose from photosynthesis is used for the plant's immediate needs and is also converted, sometimes with other molecules, into more complex starches that do not dissolve in water and can therefore be stored for a long time. This is probably the biggest difference, at least in the kitchen, between sugars and starches. A sugar will dissolve in room temperature water, while starches don't absorb water until the temperature rises considerably, at which point they begin to swell up and with some starches and at some temperatures burst. Cornstarch, perhaps the most common pure starch in American cooking, is made by soaking grains of corn, then separating the outside from the inside and grinding them separately. They are then washed, and this process produces a wide range of corn products, corn oil among them. The insoluble starch settles out of the water and is collected and dried. Corn syrup, unlike the syrups made from other plants like sugarcane and maple, which come from boiling down raw juice, is actually made by adding water to this dehydrated cornstarch and using enzymes to break it down into its simpler molecular constituents. There are two important polysaccharides in the culinary starches, amylose and amylopectin. And amylose is the biggest one in sauce making. When it is at room temperature, it forms long straight chains, but when it's heated, it begins to coil, and this coiling process traps moisture within it. The molecules bump into each other, become tangled, and begin to form a web that slows the free movement of the base liquid. The texture of the sauce becomes thicker. The more starch, the more tangles, and the thicker the sauce becomes. The behavior of different starches and the texture of their resulting gel is determined by their relative composition of amylose and amylopectin, with the root-based starches like potato and tapioca having different characteristics than the grain or seed-based starches like cornstarch and flour. Flour adds the additional complication for making sauces of being composed partially of the protein called the gluten, which does nothing but complicate the job of thickening. Everything else gets the glory in the kitchen. Sugar is turned into all manner of fanciful delights. Various parts of animals are made into the centerpiece of meals. Whole books are devoted to the complex flavors derived from various herbs and spices. Fruits are beloved, and even the root vegetables like carrots and beets that are mainly composed of starches are only considered to be at their best when their sugars are brought to the forefront. And yet the overwhelming majority of calories that have fueled the humans that have built and stocked the kitchens of the world come from starch. All right, that is the burner going on for my pan. And my pan it contains about half uh, vegetable oil, canola oil, I think is in this case, 
and half lard. Lard makes a huge difference in the end result flavor and in the texture too quite, uh, quite a bit. The saturated fats in general make fried foods a little bit kind of crispier, which is one reason that people, you know, used to use Crisco a lot to fry in. And this fat is different styles of fried chicken. To my mind, there's basically three that are distinct from each other. And then they obviously have like their own sub styles and there's a lot of different ways within the styles that you can make them. <laughs> Just gonna say I'm excluding oven fried chicken from this particular category as that's really a different process. And I'm just talking about chicken fried in fat. There's, there's basically three different styles and one the most common and the one that most everybody is most familiar with. And when you say fried chicken, I think this is the one that people think of is a breaded fried chicken. So the breading is gonna be, it, it, there's a range from fairly light to fairly heavy, um, but definitely like a distinctive layer of a coating on the outside, whether it's panko, whether it's breadcrumbs, whether it's just multiple dips in flour and say in a in a milk or an egg wash or something like that. It's it's drier. You once it's breaded, then you can definitely like sit it on a rack and it's a dress. But it is definitely like there's a there's a, a buildup on the outside of the chicken, and that is what provides the. The second major style is battered fried chicken. And that much less common here, although it's, I think in, uh, in Japan, you see it sometimes in chicken wings too here, they'll use a batter as opposed to a breading. And that is a liquid batter that you coat the, the whole piece in and then immediately drop it into a deep fat fryer. It has to be deep fat fried. You, you can't pan fry battered anything really because it, the batter doesn't cook all at once. So breading, you can flip things over and manipulate them during the process. But in, well, with batter, you got, it's got to go in whole. The third style, which is what we're gonna make today. I don't really know what to call it. It's kind of like a breading. There is some starch and some coating involved, but it's not about, the, the crunch itself doesn't, it's not a thing that, that happens on the outside of the chicken. The crunch is mostly skin. And that is my favorite style of fried chicken. And that is a pretty common style of doing it in the South. Although a lot of places that would call something Southern fried chicken tend to have a, a heavier breading. And in part, I think because chicken requires a lot of time, specifically time for the chicken to sit around, A, in buttermilk, and then B, air drying. The, the first thing that I can think of that is similar to this in all of cooking is the way that picking duck is made. They'll air dry the duck for a day in order to get the skin to release some of its moisture and to shrink a little bit because then, when you then go to cook afterwards, when you deep fry this duck, then they get this really crispy, like shatteringly crisp skin that still has a little bit of the fatty quality from the fat and the collagen in the, in the skin that, that rides along with it. And that is very, very close to what this style of fried chicken will produce. What you wind up with at the end of it is like a paper thin chicken skin that's still underneath it where it contacts the meat. It's still got like this little bit of like soft fattiness that is just amazing and it's sticky and it's just beautiful. And that, the skin is the point of this particular style of chicken. All fried things in general are kind of about texture which is one of the great things about it, about frying food. It gets a bad rap for a lot of reasons, and one of the reasons is it's badly done. It really sucks. It's heavy, and it can be greasy and like not very appealing, but when fried food is done really well, it tastes very light. The really great thing is there's such an amazing contrast between the outside, which, is, which should be crispy and light and shatter in your mouth, and then what's on the inside has a very different texture, textural contrast that is really the thing that's so appealing about fried food. That kind of textural contrast is not something that we in the West typically feature in our food. In a lot of cookbooks that deal with uh, the various Eastern Asian cuisines, like texture is very important, especially like in a lot of Chinese cooking, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on you want crunchy elements soft elements and sticky elements, all those are all things that play almost as important a role as what we think of as like salt, fat, acid, that kind of thing. So fried foods basically appeal to that love of the interplay of crispiness and softness. And that is what fried chicken really is about. So how do we get it? 
we start out with chicken, and in this case, we've <laughs> got a bit of a, a bit of a chicken rant. It's something that now and then, in the last 22 third and chickens have been bred to have these gigantic breasts. And it's because for chicken breast, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with liking one piece of the chicken more than the other. The difficulty is that when you have these gigantic balloons hanging off the front of the bird, they're really difficult to fry. Back in the old days, before chickens became so standardized and so bloated, there were different kinds. You could get a frying chicken, you could get a roasting chicken, you could get a stewing chicken. The roasting chicken would be a larger chicken, you know. Generally, a roaster would be in the range of four to five pounds, roughly. And a frying chicken would not be much bigger than three and a half pounds. And the reason is, is that you need the pieces to be fairly small to be able to actually fry them. If your pieces are too large, by the time the outside's crispy and done and brown, the inside is still. And it's really tough to nail down one of these massive breasts that, I mean, some of these things, you look at them and they're like three inches thick and you can't, well, you can, you can, because I've done it. It's just really hard and it requires constant attention to temperature control too low then it just kind of absorbs into the the flour if it gets if it gets too cool but if it's too hot then it just burns so you got to keep it in the sweet spot where it's not just soaking into the flour and it's not just stewing the chicken and making the outside soft but you also have to not burn it and it's hard it's really hard to do if you're doing the modern chicken breast that's you know two or three inches thick so if you're gonna fry modern chickens, it's just a lot easier to breast out your chickens, butterfly them and do them that way, bread them. Or you could, you could use Cornish hens. Well, old school Cornish hens used to be a lot smaller than they are now. The modern Cornish hen is now about the size of the old. If you really want a fried chicken and you can't find fryers, you can occasionally get them. They still make them, but stand almost all of them go to KFC, Popeyes, churches, and the, the other various fried chicken chains because they still, they know like that's the kind of chicken that you want. They don't want the massive breasts. Rant about modern chickens aside. So I cut my chicken up and I soaked it in a buttermilk brine. And that was just a pint of butter. This is just the, uh, the legs and the wings is all I'm using in here. I I'm doing the, I'm using the, the breasts for other purposes because really if you don't get the skin like that, then you could keep the skin on the on half of the breast and do it that way, but you know, whatever. Simplifying my life. Plus, I think we all know that thighs are better fried chicken anyway. And that's just science, you know? I don't think you can really argue with that. So the main use for cornstarch really isn't as a fried chicken coating. The main thing it does is it's a thickener. By far the most common usage for cornstarch is to thicken liquids, particularly sauces and, or the most famous in, at least in the US, probably up until recent, until the last 50 years or so, the most common usage of cornstarch was for making pudding because US pudding is just milk and cornstarch basically and sugar thickened into a into a pudding. The other really famous use of cornstarch in the US is as the main thickener in almost all Chinese American sauces. It's also very common in China as a, as a thickener. Although in China, they use a lot of uh, potato starch as well. And I think they ha probably have some more local starches too. Whereas in the West, in European derived cooking traditions, cornstarch and the, the other pure starches aren't nearly as commonly used as roux, which is a little weird <laughs> and a little bit ironic because uh, Auguste Escoffier, who was sort of the first great French cookbook writer, you know, wrote the Guide Culinaire, which cataloged all the techniques of high-end French restaurant cooking from the late 1800s, early 1900s. He actually says somewhere in the Guide Culinaire, he couldn't wait for the development of uh, pure starches at an industrial level because then he, could, <laughs> then he could quit making roux. And that did not at all come to pass. Like, pure starch never became as accepted in the West uh, as it did in the East for for sauce making. And I, it's beyond me to understand exactly why and what the processes were. So today, what I'm gonna do, because I've used a fair amount of cornstarch in making sauces and in making pastry creams and in making puddings and you know, the usual things that you use it for. 
but I haven't really used a lot of the other starches um, because it is cornstarch is by far not the only one. I thought today I would make the same sauce four different times with the only variable being the type of starch that we're going to use. So I've got a bag of cornstarch, I've got a bag of potato starch, I got a bag of tapioca flour, and I've got a bag of arrowroot. And these are all just pure starches that come from different sources and that are typically used for different things. And I basically have almost no experience with any of them except for the cornstarch. Tapioca flour obviously is very famously used in tapioca pudding, um, although typically it also comes in pearls and that's kind of the more well-known, that, that's what gives the tapioca pudding, it's kind of like grainy texture is, those, is the tapioca pearls. Uh, it's also very frequently used for thickening fruit pies, uh, especially. Arrowroot is not super common. I think, don't they make crackers out of it for babies? <laughs> I think. And uh, it also occasionally gets used in fruit pies as well, although I don't think it's nearly as common in the States as it maybe is in some other places. I sort of know that they all have different qualities and different characteristics, but I don't really remember what they all are. So I'm going to be seeing what, I mean, I could go look it up, but, <laughs> but I think it's much more interesting for the show if I just make a very simple sauce out of all of these uh, starches and describe what's happening. And this isn't going to cover every possible use case, obviously. You know, some might be good for making pudding, some might be better hot, some might be better cold, but we're going to get a basic idea of how they all perform. Um, the last one that I have here is potato starch. And if you've ever washed potatoes for french fries, you will have seen potato starch because that's basically how they make it, is they rinse potatoes and they collect the starch. You've seen it at the bottom. If you soak your potatoes uh, overnight in water, pull them out and let the water sit at the bottom, you'll see a layer of potato starch. And that is exactly what this is. Since these are such common starches for particularly associated with Chinese cooking, even in China, you know, it's not just a Chinese American thing. Although ours typically tend to use more starch uh, in the US than and I haven't been to China. I could be way off base here. But from people who have been to China, they typically will, will say that the sauces in China are a little thinner. They're not nearly as corn starchy and as gloopy as sometimes the ones here can get, particularly from places that aren't very good. And gloopy is a good word to sort of Describe, that's like a bad cornstarch or any starch-based sauce has that gloopy texture. If there's too much of the starch, it gets, you know, sticky and a little weird feeling in the mouth, almost like starts moving towards jelly. As opposed to uh, a roux-based sauce, the bad ones of those that use too much roux, those are probably more accurately described as like stodgy, almost bready tasting. You know, if you've ever had a gravy that's too thick where you almost have to chew it, that's kind of the, the bad roux. So we want to avoid that by not using too much. So we're basing our, our little miniature scientific experiment here on a really simple and vaguely Chinese type sauce. And so the sauce that I've made is a really basic, uh, it's three, three cups of chicken stock, one cup of rice wine or shaozing wine, a little bit of soy sauce, and a little bit of black Chinese vinegar. I, I separated that out, that gave me four cups of liquid, and so I separated that out into four individual cups, and I used the ratio that was recommended uh, by the starch manufacturer for each one. And so cornstarch is the simplest one. One cup, or one tablespoon of cornstarch to thicken one cup of liquid. Obviously, these measurements can vary quite a bit. Like some people might like a little less thickener. They, they might want their sauce to be a little looser, a little more liquid. Some people might like a little more. So obviously the, the, it, it can change quite a bit based on taste, but this is sort of the base where you start from. And then you can go in either direction that you want. Tapioca flour is one cup of liquid and one and about a quarter tablespoon of cornstarch. Arrowroot is one tablespoon and one cup of liquid. And potato starch is one and a third tablespoons to one cup of liquid. Tapioca flour is one and a quarter tablespoons to one cup of liquid. So I've got them all in a bowl. The most important thing with starches, and you gotta remember this, is you never, 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 never add these to a hot liquid. Because what will happen is they will immediately clump up and you will never be able to get them to unclump. And what's actually happening when they clump like that 
the starches on the outside of the clump harden up. They absorb water, and then nothing on the inside can absorb any more water. So even if you break up the clump, then the exposed surfaces immediately absorb a bunch more water, swell up, and prevent water from getting to the interior. So there's not really any way to, once it starts to clump, to fix it. So you always have to start these with, uh, typically you'll start them with a slurry because you're adding them to a hot sauce. Like if you're doing a stir fry, you've already got a bunch of hot ingredients going on in your wok. You're not going to cool down the sauce. Um, the sauce is just made right there in the wok. So to thicken it, you add a little water or in some cases chicken stock or whatever, a cool liquid at a one-to-one -one ratio to make a slurry. Stir it all up, make sure it's completely absorbed, and then you dump that into the hot liquid and it will fully disperse and thicken and blah, blah, and all the other stuff. Now they all behave a little bit different in the actual cooking process. So that's one thing that we're about to describe is what some of them are known for being able to stand a lot of cooking. Some break down relatively quickly. Um, some can be boiled, some have to be boiled. Cornstarch pretty much needs to be boiled uh, in order to set. I'm not sure about the other ones, we're gonna find out. So that, that's basically, if you're starting from cold liquid though, which, which is what I am doing here, uh, the, the sauce is cold, so I just added it directly on top of the uh, starch and stirred while I was pouring it in so that it, it fully dissolved. Sitting in the bowls cold, they all look about the same. The sauce itself was, you know, obviously fairly brown from the chicken stock and the soy sauce and all that. Now they're very, they're all in an opaque brown color. I would never know which one was which. One of the reasons for using different starches for different purposes is that at the end, some of them are going to look different than the others. So we're gonna start with cornstarch. That's the one I'm familiar with. And I'm just gonna whisk. Got it in a fairly shallow skillet, so it won't, hopefully it won't take too long. So right now, I mean, it is definitely, it is the consistency of the water. And uh, we'll see how long it takes to really start to thicken up. And I'm just looking at it on a spoon and watching as it runs off. Since I have a thermometer here, in the interest of science, we'll talk about the temperature as it does its thing. So right now we are at 115 degrees. All the fat on top is melted, but we are definitely a very thin sauce right now. Once I get to the boil, I'm gonna let it go past the point of uh, thickening for a few minutes, just to see what happens when I do that. Because, as I said, some of these do very well under a boil, and some do not. Some also do well under acidic conditions, which this sauce, it does have a little bit of vinegar, so there is going to be some acidity. And cornstarch is notoriously does poorly in an acid sauce. But this isn't super acidic, I don't think. And then I'll also set up the bowl and pour it back in so we can see what happens as it cools. So now we're at 165. And it looks like it's definitely just starting to thicken a little bit. It's also starting to sort of clarify a little. It's becoming glossy, which it wasn't before. It's still opaque. It's still not completely see-through or anything. It's not totally clear, but it's definitely acquiring a gloss and it's a little bit translucent. Now I can see the bottom of the pan. This is an enamel cast iron pan and there's a couple of discolored spots on the bottom and I can see them very well now as I stir. We are getting pretty close to the boil. Now it's definitely what I would call a thickened sauce. It is considerably thicker than it was. It's still thinner, not gloopy, and we are at 203. Now interestingly, so it's coating the back of a spoon very well, but it's not really doing, when I run the tip of the thermometer across the back of the of the spoon, it doesn't leave a trail, which is kind of a classic method, especially in custard making, for determining when the custard's done. It's not as thick as a custard sauce right now, for sure. It's still relatively thin. It's, it's definitely not, I wouldn't consider this like a gravy consistency. It's a fairly light sauce. It's got the glossy characteristic. That's you know, one of the big differences between starch, pure starch sauces and roux is that the protein in the flour in the roux blocks light. So it's not, a roux-based roux sauce is never going to be transparent or translucent. And 
it's also not going to reflect light in the same way. The light gets absorbed by the proteins. So roux-based sauces appear completely opaque. And then I'll just look at it now off the heat and we'll see what it... Now I would, this is definitely, this is a very liquid sauce. Uh, this one tablespoon of cornstarch in one cup of water. It is definitely not the thickness of like a gravy or something like that. It is just, a, it's a very, it, it would be a light and sort of clingy sauce, but it wouldn't necessarily be a great coater, if that makes sense. And I have a bowl here and in my bowl is pure cornstarch. And there is a little story there. So the reason that cornstarch is fantastic for frying things is basically, I don't completely know exactly what's going on on a chemical level. You get a, a breading that is crisper for longer. It stays crispy. It doesn't absorb water in the same way that a flour-based breading does at the end of the process. Essentially, you can hold your chicken for longer and still have a, a high-quality, non-soggy outer coating. And I know this, and I could say this because when I started doing this, I used to do fried chicken every Friday when I ran a restaurant, and I started out using almost all flour and a little bit of cornstarch, and gradually, over time, I started using less and less flour until at the end, I was only using cornstarch, and I could tell you can tell the difference. So cornstarch on a coating like this, where there's no, we're not, we don't need the, the coating to do anything structural. We don't need, like in a batter where you need the gluten to provide the structure of the batter, in this, we don't. We don't care about that. Even in a, even in a breading, you need to have like a little bit for your little crunchy nubs to turn themselves into. Whereas this, this won't really do that. This won't clump up in the same way that a flour-based uh, batter will. You can only use it for a breading or for only layer on this particular style of fried chicken. My chicken sat in a buttermilk brine, which is just cover and stuff like this, where at this particular style, if you're making like a breading fried chicken, you're, you're not gonna be able to get that same papery quality on the skin in a breading fried chicken. In that circumstance, out of the brine, throw it in your breading, whatever it is, put it in the fryer right away. If you're trying to get this kind of fried chicken with papery skin that's dry and thin and all the, all the stuff I'm talking about, you have to let it air dry and you really need to give it at least a day. And what'll happen, part of the buttermilk will drain off. You'll, you'll still have some buttermilk solids left behind, so you'll still, you'll still get some of that caramelized buttermilk flavor. The skin will shrink, the moisture will, will either drain off or the air, and you'll be left with very attractive, tight-looking, and fairly dry-feeling chicken. Like, I'm touching it right now, and it doesn't feel particularly wet. It's relatively dry, and that's good because we want it to be relatively dry. We don't want the cornstarch to form a thick layer on it. We just want the cornstarch to provide a little extra, basically what we're doing, mostly because this chicken is already brined. And I've added some paprika, and I've added some thyme and some pepper. The last thing I need is a little bit of cayenne. So I'm starting with a wing here, and just to describe what, what this looks like, it looks like a chicken wing <laughs> covered in cornstarch. There aren't big dry feeling right now. It's a chicken wing covered in cornstarch. Here's a chicken leg starch. And you just want even coverage and uh, you just kind of knock it off and knock off any excess. It's moist enough, you know, there's enough residual moisture on the outside of the chicken to fully absorb the cornstarch. But we're going to get a very, very dry coating. And you can do this well in advance. In fact, with most breadings, it's, it's an advantage to do them well in advance with most dry coatings. It gives everything, it gives the cornstarch, you know, or any starches in the breading, because all breading is gonna contain starches. It gives them a chance to fully absorb any moisture on the outside so that you know you're going in very dry, which is important for generating crispiness. You cannot fry things that are wet. And I know you're gonna say, well, what about batters? Well, the thing about batters is that as soon as they're formulated, so that as soon as they go in, the thing on the outside immediately turns into a dry, hard shell. You know, you can't just pour milk into a deep fat fryer and hope to 
Get in to get the flour milk balls. Okay, so th those are my pieces. <coughs> and from here on out, we're basically doing standard foil up to 350, add our pieces and monitor the temperature. Now, the one thing we do, we do again, we wanna be careful. The one thing again that we wanna avoid is burning the outside while the inside is not cooked. So this is, it's very handy to have a thermometer, the oil and the inside of the chicken pieces so that you'll know when you're getting there. There's a thigh. There's a thigh, there's a leg, and there's a leg. I do still have the wings, but they're not gonna fit. It's the one rule about frying, you can never overcrowd your skin. Water in the food won't have enough oil to be absorbed into and to escape and to boil off, which a lot of the beginning process of this is, is butter on the outside. Adding those temperature that you wanted, that you started it with, because the other side is cool too. So you fit immediately. But once you, once both sides get a nice crust on them, then the oil temperature is gonna stay a lot more stable. So we just gotta deal with this a little bit. We're, we're still hovering a little bit above 300. Now a lot of water is being released from the chicken into the oil. And that is responsible for an enormous amount of the, the, the oil temperature dropping. Until the oil temperature begins to stabilize on this side, we can't flip because otherwise a little bit of a crust on the outside. Oil management, oil temperature management, basically the trick um, is keeping the oil temperature from dropping too low and keeping the oil temperature from going too high. And it's different for everything, you know, in a deep fryer, relatively small batches and a relatively large amount of oil, the oil temperature doesn't drop that much. Even if they're, even if you're cooking things, because the volume of oil is huge. Whereas pan frying, the volume of oil is a lot. You have to be careful about adding too much to the oil, cooling it down too much, and getting resulting bad results. Pan frying like this, it's a little bit like if you've ever made caramel or really any kind of candy that has water in it at the beginning. It will, it'll sit there at, well, caramel will sit there at like 212 to 220 for a long time. And then all of a sudden, and the same thing actually when making a roux, it'll sit at a certain temperature for a very long time as the water's cooking out of it. And then as more of the water begins to boil out, more sugar again, all of a sudden the temperature starts rising and it starts happening very quickly. So it's something that you have to constantly be watching is once you see your temperature really start to take off, then you know, oh, I'm about, I'm to the point where the outside of this is mostly dry and I need to start thinking about flipping it. Again, in pan frying, unlike the oil can be very different temperature. So that's another reason why it's a little different. You know, in the middle, it can be quite a bit hotter or sometimes quite a bit cooler. If you've got a bunch of things close together in the middle where they're dunge of water out into a little spot and it can't move very much, so you wanna make sure that you're helping your oil circulate a little and, and rotating the pieces around helps with that as well. Yeah, I'm getting up to, now I'm about 315. And that was the sound of a little pocket of uh, moisture, which happens if you do pan frying, wind up with little scars on your, looking on the outside, just taking a look and seeing now to stabilize temperature wise, I'm just taking a look to see how my crust is developing. And it is very, very, very light brown right now. We've still got quite a ways to go. What about 320 right now? Once I get up to probably 330 or so, then I'll give these guys a flip. Reliable indicators that it's getting close to being able to flip is that you'll see the red juices start to bubble up on uncooked half. Again, that's not blood, that's myoglobin, which is a protein that's found in actually blood. With a lot of uh, foods like pork chops or steaks or whatever, when you see those red juices starting to bubble up, it means it's probably time to flip it because a lot of the, a lot of the underside has now been cooked and in order to slow the cooking of the underside, you want to flip it over so that it doesn't overcook there. For 330s right now, so I'm going to go ahead and flip these. And you can hear, now there's a bunch more water being reintroduced into the system. So I just flipped the drumsticks because they're re releasing quite a bit of moisture. So I'm going to go ahead and let them cook off some of that. And then I'll flip just to stagger that that water release so my temperature doesn't drop too far too fast. Oh man, so beautiful. 
and just looking at it, like you can see that the skin itself is a distinctive. It almost looks a little bit like a duck skin, you know. And you can you can just see how pretty and beautiful it's going to look and going to taste. But again, there aren't a lot of like crusty, nubby stuff like that. So you know, if you're making something that does take like a lot of sauce, you know, like chicken wings. Or, you know, if you're making something like hot chicken or whatever, where you're dredging the whole chicken through a, through a sauce, you actually want to have a heftier breading because that has more nooks and crannies for the sauce to adhere to. This, this style of chicken, again, this is just about really the skin. Everything else is secondary. The, the chicken itself, of course, is delicious. The skin, the skin is the point here. Next, I'm gonna do potato starch because supposedly potato starch is very close in behavior to cornstarch. Wow, this is really interesting. Okay, so the potato starch right now, it's fully hydrated, but now it's like almost, the sauce is beginning to thicken in clumps almost. Like there's little spots of gel that are starting to appear. It's <laughs> as opposed to like the whole sauce thickening at once, which was exact, which was what the cornstarch did. This potato starch, it's like spots of it, so all of a sudden settling out, and then the then the rest of it is not thick. Oh, this is completely different. Wow, wow, this is wild. So the potato starch, <laughs> it is now formed almost like a jelly. Like this is way thick suddenly, and it happened really fast. Like it all of a sudden it gelled. It's very glossy, it's extremely thick. And what, what temperature are we at here? Like this is not even a sauce, this is like a spread. It's almost like a mayonnaise consistency. And it's only at 185 degrees, like it's not even at a boil yet. And it is completely a gel. I wouldn't even consider this a sauce actually. I would consider this a spread. But it is distinctly not very appealing with all these savory flavors coming out of it. It's a little off-putting, honestly. Definitely one and three quarters tablespoons of potato starch. It doesn't seem to be the equivalent thickening power to the one tablespoon of cornstarch that the manufacturer claimed because this is something else. And it seems like it's getting stickier as it goes. It's actually, it's not very translucent at all. It doesn't look like a lot of light is really penetrating it, like when I run it over the, the discolored spots on the bottom of my enameled cast iron, I have to get it pretty thin before I can see, see through to the bottom. It's almost like silly putty now. <laughs> to make an actual sauce would require considerably less potato starch, I think. I'm not really looking forward to tasting this one, honestly. It's sort of unappealing. So back over here, and I'm looking at the cornstarch. And the cornstarch has started to do what cornstarch does. It's developed a little skin as it cools. Yeah, it's still distinctly thin, but it definitely, it's coating its spoon. And the potato starch is, <laughs> yeah, it's like rubbery and weird looking, and I'm fascinated by that. So the next one is going to be tapioca flour. And again, tapioca flour is one plus a little bit. It's about one and a quarter tablespoons of tapioca powder to my one cup of liquid. Okay, tapioca. Ooh, it's starting to gel in exactly the same way the potato starch did. Like little bits of it are turning into a thickened uh, gel and sort of dropping out of the, the liquid. And now we're, the whole thing is starting to thicken up. Yeah, this looks just like the way that the potato starch came together. Let's see where we're at. We're at 172 degrees when this thickening started. And here we go. Oh yeah, it's thickening it. Now it's now it's happening. It, it looks a lot more like the cornstarch. This doesn't feel nearly as thick and heavy, although we'll see. <laughs> Still got a little ways to go here. It also appears clearer to me than the cornstarch. Like now, without even disturbing it, I can see the discolorations in the bottom of my enameled cast iron. And it's the same amount of liquid, so it seems a little bit clearer to me than the cornstarch version. It's actually really nice so far. We're just coming to the boil, so. We'll see what happens as we boil it. I think it's actually, it's thickening up. It's a little thicker than the cornstarch for sure. It's leaving a, a 
slightly distinct trail. It's not as it's not as distinct a trail on the back of the spoon as like a, a custard or a creme anglaise or a sauce like that. But it's very it, it's there. Whereas the cornstarch, uh, it was not there. So this is definitely a little bit thicker than the cornstarch. You know, it could be just a variant of how exact I was with the, the measurements but it's slightly thicker. It feels like it might be a little more aromatic as well, or at least a little more, it's almost a little more chickeny than the cornstarch. The cornstarch, I, I got a distinct whiff of vinegar, and this one, I'm not really. This one, it, it, it feels a little more chickeny, and it actually seems like, you know, smell-wise, we'll see once we get to the taste part, uh, this feels like it's maybe a little more well-blended, that makes sense. So we've been boiling for two or three minutes. Seems like it's holding fairly well. Yeah, there's a distinct trail here. It seems to have thickened up just a little bit as it boils. Look at it. It's the potato, the cornstarch has a milkier texture. This is a very rich brown. It's really pretty actually. I might switch to tapioca flour in the, oh, this potato starch. It is like stirring really loose, silly putty. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm <laughs> now I'm really not looking forward to trying the potato starch. But I will, for science, and for Check the Pantry. All right, so our last of our starch experiments is the arrowroot. And this, they say, one-to-one -one cornstarch substitution. So one tablespoon of arrowroot and one cup of my liquid, just like cornstarch. So here we go. It's about in line with the other three. And let's see what we get here. It also occurs to me that it's possible that the uh, the slightly more thickening of the tapioca flour versus the slightly less thickening of the cornstarch could also be because of the presence of the vinegar. You know, we've got a slightly acidic sauce and cornstarch is not one that does well under acid where tapioca is, which is why it's such a common ingredient in fruit pies because fruit pies contain a lot of acid. All right, arrowroot. Ooh, starting to get a few little drops thickening. Here we go. This, here we go. Things are happening. What temp are we at? We're at 161 now we've started to thicken, which is lower than I think any of the other ones. And now here we go. Things are happening fairly quickly now. Okay, this, yep, it's arrowroot is the one that forms the clear gel. Not just clear, but clear. It's as, almost as clear as like consomme. Nothing's as clear as consomme, but it's pretty close. Glossy, shiny, and transparent for sure. It's also very distinctly thick. In fact, I would describe this one as almost like a honey, like a honey kind of thickness where it's still, you know, it's still definitely a liquid, but there's a lot of resistance with the spoon. As I push it around the pan, it takes a long time to sort of coat the pan where it was. Now the smell of this one, again, it's a little different than, than any of the others, which is, I'm really curious to see what happens when I taste these. This one, it almost smells a little more like the sweetness of the rice wine and that kind of like slight fermented flavor from the soy sauce are a little more prominent. Okay, now it's boiling a little harder and developing a little bit of an unpleasant texture, a little gloopy, I would say. As it boils here, it's starting to look a little, <laughs> it's not near, it's not near what the uh, potato starch is, but now it's definitely generating kind of a jelly-like texture that is not super pleasant. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> really, wow, that kind of changed pretty quick too. This must be one of the ones that shouldn't boil. It was right at the beginning, it had a really nice texture, and now it's just sort of sticky and gloopy and, uh, Oh man, I gotta eat this. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, this is also one of the ones I believe that's impervious. Oh, yeah. ew. <laughs> this, if you were ever a, if you were a kid in the 80s and you ever saw that Nickelodeon show, was it, I think it was called You Can't Do That on Television, where they, there was a secret word every day and they would, if, you, if somebody said the secret word, then they would drop green slime all over the person. This is kind of that texture. It's distinctly sort of slimy. Great, I get to eat this. Awesome. On the other hand, for something like a custard sauce, like a lemon curd or something, I bet this would work really well. Because you're not, you, you don't get those that hot. But subjected to boiling you. I'm gonna do it though. I said I was gonna do it. 
So I'm going to do it. Oh, man. Yeah, this comes off in clumps on the spoon. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, the taste test. Now, to see the, the flavor, any flavor differences and any textural differences in the mouth of the various sauces. So first, we'll just start at the beginning. Here's the cornstarch. And uh, it's distinctly thick. But again, it's not super thick. But here we go. Let's see what our taste is like. So there's a distinctive sort of acidic flavor. And I'm definitely getting uh, a lot of like, it's, it, it's, quite, it's quite good. Uh, it's, it's enjoyable to eat. There's a flavor that's very familiar and I'm trying to figure out what it is. It's almost, it's kind of weird, but it tastes a little bit like, like chili cheese Fritos. Um, this is the only thing I can really describe it as. Uh, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that is. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, wow, chili cheese Fritos. I mean, it was very distinctive. All right. <laughs> Here's my silly putty potato starch. If I can even get any of it to stay on the spoon, it just wants to stay together and it doesn't want to leave the bowl. All right, here we go. Oh, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, oh my God, that was gross. That was really horrible. The, <laughs> the scientific conclusion is don't use that much potato starch. Maybe try one-to-one, -one. maybe start with that, but that was really unpleasant. It was kind of like, it's like eating rubber, basically. It, it, rubbery is, I suppose, how we would describe that. Oh God, that was awful. That was really bad. The things I do for this show. All right, tapioca flour. Still distinctly thicker than the cornstarch. And also it didn't, it didn't really develop a skin on the top of it like the cornstarch did either. So there's some potential here. Smells good. All right, here we go. Hmm. Oh, that's good. That's delicious. Honestly, uh, the chicken flavor is very straightforward. Um, it's the first thing you get and it's constantly there. It doesn't have that weird, <laughs> that weird chili cheese Frito flavor that the cornstarch based sauce has. Uh, it's just, it's very, it's really nice. It sits in the mouth. Uh, with a with a nice texture. It feels good on the palate. It feels like all of the ingredients have blended. Like I'm not picking out any particular ingredient. You know, I'm not like, oh, there's the soy sauce or oh, there's an acidic flavor from the vinegar. It just feels like the whole sauce is a unified and very tasty whole. I like it quite a bit. And I'm really a little surprised uh, that there's such a dramatic difference between the tapioca flour flavor and the cornstarch. That's interesting. Huh. All right, the arrowroot has cooled down a little bit, and we're definitely not as gloopy as the disgusting potato starch, but it's still fairly, fairly thick. A sip of water here. I'm not really looking forward to this, but who knows? Maybe once you get, sometimes when you get things in your mouth, they start to melt. Can you tell I'm putting this off a little bit? Oh, oh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, that's a really, really unpleasant texture. <laughs> really, really unpleasant. And it has that Frito flavor too. It's really weird. It kind of hits on the back of the palate. It's this real high note that, <coughs> I mean, it's great in chili cheese Fritos, but it's just not working with all this other stuff that's going on. And that, that texture was just really, really unappealing. And that one definitely, it definitely went from at the lower temperatures, it again, it was the earliest to, to start gelling of all of them. And it was definitely, for a while, it was a really nice texture. So it would have been cool to have tasted it right then. But then when I kept boiling it, then it just became really unappealing. That's not good. It's really not good. I'm gonna take another bite of the tapioca flour sauce just to, the tapioca flour, this would be a really nice gravy for a lot of different things. It just, it tastes like a good chicken sauce. It just has a nice flavor. The cornstarch, I still think, I do think it had the nicest, it has the nicest texture of them all. It's very, very soft. It's very silky. The potato starch is obviously like rubber and disgusting. I mean, it just, yeah. the arrowroot feels slimy as opposed to saucy. When, when you put it in your mouth, it sort of coats your whole mouth and it stays like, it, it, it keeps that consistency for a little bit. The cornstarch sort of dissolves immediately and the tapioca flour does too, pretty quick. So texture wise, I think the cornstarch might be slightly better. It would be interesting to dial back on the tapioca flour a little bit 
and see if we get a little bit, just a slight bit of looser texture. But the tapioca flour definitely is the best flavor of them all. I'm not sure why, honestly. So expect me to revisit starches in future episodes because this is very instructive. It's not very often that, you know, even when you've, when you've cooked for a long time, it's not very often that you actually line up a bunch of different things next to each other and taste them. Bam, 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 bam. It just, it's not something you really do that often. One day in the future, I will try making some potato starch, a, a sauce with potato starch. I'm just going to use a lot less potato starch. And the same thing with the arrowroot. I might try making lemon curd with arrowroot because for a while, man, that texture was really nice. Tapioca flour is my winner today. I'm probably going to start using that a lot more. Every time you cook, you know, you always learn something. <laughs> here. So we're back up teen is the oil temp. So once we get about another 10 degrees, and again, I can actually, I don't have to worry so much about the water coming off now because most of it is pretty well boiled off. There will still be a little bit of residual stuff as you flip things. You'll hear the, you'll hear it sizzle for a minute, but for the most part, we have a pretty solid outer shell. So now we can just worry about finishing the chicken uh, on the inside and getting a nice even stuff. Although one thing I I'll say too is that one of the joys of this particular style of chicken is that the, the color tends to be a little more variable. Uh, the parts of them will be light, parts of them will be dark. It's not nearly as even looking, uh, either a breaded or a battered and deep fried chicken. It's also very visually appealing, which is nice. Other side. And one thing that I did not mention, and I should have, is always make sure that you start your frying on the attractive side. So for the thighs, you want to start on the side with the smooth, big piece of skin that covers it. And this and the drumsticks, you want to start on the side that doesn't have the part where you hack the chicken's knee off. So there's a nice looking side and there's a side that's not as nice looking. Always, always on the nice looking side because it's going to get the nicest brown every time. And that's just one of the things of frying. So at this point, now that I've flipped it over, now that the nice side's on the bottom too, I like to make any pokes with my thermometer in on the, on the ugly side. And I'm going to try to find a spot that's fairly close to the bone, dip it in, and we'll see where we're at. I'm at 133 on the inside of that thigh. My leg here is at 137. So we've still got a little, little bit to go. We want to get to 155 with these guys. And the other nice thing about dark meat in particular is that you don't have to worry soap hitting an exact temp. You just have to basically get past 155. Actually, some people would, some people prefer their dark meat to be a little more cooked because then it'll be just a little bit softer and some, a little more of the fat will have rendered into the chicken. But at this point, I'm going to start turning them relatively, relatively frequently because I don't want them to just sit on one side, overcooking on one side while undercooking on the other. And once I flip them back on the other side, on the ugly side, that's, that's the side I'm going to consistently test on. And you just, you don't want to touch the bone because bone conducts heat differently than meat. So you, you don't want to actually touch the tip of your probe to the bone. You just want to get fairly close to it because that's going to be the last part of the chicken to cook. And this is also the stage where you start to have to be a little bit careful about temperature because now that a, a significant portion of the water, it's easy for the temperature of the oil to start getting too hot. So you also want to check your oil temp now and then. Right now I'm about 328, which is kind of perfect. I'm going to turn my oil down just slightly because 328 is kind of where I'd love to stay for the rest of this. So I don't want to get any hotter. And from now on, it's really easy for the oil to... And I'm gonna go ahead and flip these guys. And I'm gonna set up a rack. If you don't have a rack, you can put them on paper towels. A rack's just a little bit nicer because they get airflow all around them. Typically, it's a good idea to also dab them with paper towels just to dab up any excess grease that might be attached to them. Okay. 59. Oh yeah. These guys are done. Beauty. Pull those out, put them on the rack to drain. And I still have my wings to do. Wings are kind of a pain this way. 
because they don't really lie flat. <laughs> so they're a little bit of a challenge to pan fry. It's better if you do what I didn't do this time, and I usually do, which is cut off the tip, uh, because that tends to be the thing that really props them up. The tip's nice because it's it's all collagen, and it's kind of fun to gnaw on when they're when it's fried like this anyway. You might think, you know, in a situation like this, you might be like, oh, why don't you just try to do them all in one batch? They would have all fit in the pan. The reason is the temperature would have dropped a lot and it would have taken a lot longer to cook and the results would not have been as good. So it's actually kind of a false economy to try to fit everything in. And it typically, weirdly enough, it will go quicker if you just do them in two separate batches. A whole chicken in most size pans is gonna take two batches. And that's depending on if you try to do so I'm just going to get my oil back up to where it needs to be, which won't take long. All right, so I got my wings in. All right, now my chicken. Put it on a lovely plate. Oh, man. It's so pretty. And you pick it up, and it just, like, almost crackles when you pick it up. And you can look, and you can see on the skin, like, there's little blisters. And it's just beautiful. And it's hard. You can tap it, and you can just feel this, like, paper, paper-thin shell on the outside and then underneath it it just like it is like this fatty chickeny deliciousness and that's really all there is to it you've now got something that i think is slightly different than the usual fried chicken slightly more effort but i think that the result is dramatically superior to the breaded kind and uh in case you're wondering this is what it sounds like. Mm. Yeah, the skin just shatters. That was just peeling off a little piece of the skin and now I'm looking at the skin and there's two distinct layers. There's the one very thin crispy shell and then just underneath that is this kind of fatty layer and the two are just fused. The two are fused together because the cornstarch and the skin have become the same thing. It was a good destiny for a chicken. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebane. This is the sixth episode of the seventh season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.